Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, Michael is right. I've had the privilege to call Moody Church my home for about nine years or so now, and uh, wouldn't have it any other way. Um, so welcome tonight uh, to the Moody Church, to our Sunday night service as we continue in our series, uh, Explore God. Won't you pray with me before we open the word tonight? God, we just thank you so much for being such a good God and a God who pursues us um, when we are running from you. Thank you for your love and for sending your son for us. Be with us tonight. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to obey what you have for us from your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So it was during World War II that a young Scottish pastor named Thomas Torrance decided that he wanted to do something more to serve his country. And so he decided that he was going to join, uh, join the army as a chaplain. And it took a long time, as many people wanted to do this, but after a long and arduous journey just to become a chaplain, he finally joined with the King's Own Royal Rifles Regiment and soon found himself at war. Because of his beliefs about what he wanted to do as a chaplain, he insisted on working on the front lines of the battle. And at one point, while he and his platoon were on patrol, they came under heavy fire from the Germans, and only he and one other soldier came out alive. Another time, he was lying in a ditch next to two other soldiers when they again came under fire from the Germans, and only Torrance survived that one. The two soldiers on either side of him uh, were killed. And while he was not directly involved in the fighting himself, this war was to have a great impact on Torrance in ways that he could have never imagined. In fact, there's one particular incident that would not only have an impact on him, but it would shape his theology for the rest of his life. And it was on October 17, 1944, when his regiment launched an attack in Italy. And, and the, the city that they were attacking had such high high and thick walls that it made this attack extremely difficult. And because of that, they had to make part of this attack at night. And as a chaplain, he found that it was his job to be the person who would carry the wounded soldiers from the front lines of the battle back to safety. And he recalls this night saying this, when daylight filtered through, I came across a young soldier, scarcely 20 years old, lying mortally wounded on the ground who clearly had not long to live. As I knelt down and bent over him, he said, Padre, is God really like Jesus? I assured him that he was. He was the only God that there is, the God who had come to us in Jesus, shown his face to us, and poured out his love to us as our Savior. And as I prayed and commended him to the Lord, he passed away. And it's this question that the soldier asked, is God really like Jesus that deeply impacted Torrance and shaped his theology for the rest of his life? In fact, it was years later when he was pastoring a small church in a town in the north of Scotland called Aberdeen, where one of his parishioners asked him the very same question, is God really like Jesus? When he was asked this question, he recalled that night back in Italy when he was in that battle, when that soldier asked him the same question. And he began to ask himself, what has happened in modern theology and preaching that had driven a wedge between God and Jesus? And it was at this point he remembered fondly the words of one of his professors, a Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who said, there is no hidden God, no God behind the back of the Lord Jesus, only the one Lord God 
who became incarnate in him. And so as we continue in our Explore God series, it's this question that concerns us tonight. Is God really like Jesus? Or is Jesus really God? And while there are numerous ways to cover this topic, different methods you could use to cover this topic, there's no way to cover it exhaustively in just 30 minutes. So what I've chosen to do tonight is I want to address this topic by answering the following three questions. The first one is this, who claims that Jesus is God? Who claims that Jesus is God? The second, what does it mean that Jesus is God? And the third, and I would argue one of the most important, why does it matter that we say that Jesus is God? So my hope tonight is that you will understand that Jesus is indeed God and that this reality matters deeply for each of our salvation. So that brings us to our first question tonight. Who claims that Jesus is God? So if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Mark chapter 2. Okay, Mark chapter 2. Um, the story here takes place very early on in Jesus' public ministry uh, as he's gone around and traveled around through different cities performing miracles and teaching to different people. And word has begun to spread about who this Jesus guy is. And so there were large crowds of people that began to follow him wherever he went. And we see even that here at the end of chapter one, Jesus heals a man who had leprosy. And one of the things that he tells him, tells him is this, don't say anything to anyone about what I've done for you tonight. But the leper being so excited about what Jesus had just done in his life, if you look at verse 45, you can see exactly what he does. Chapter one, verse 45 of the book of Mark, it says this, but he being the leper went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So the leper did exactly the opposite of what Jesus asked him to do. He went out and he began to tell everyone about it. And so the crowds that were following Jesus only continued to grow. And that's where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 2, right here in the, right here in the beginning of Mark chapter 2. It tells us that Jesus had just returned to Capernaum from a mission that he was on, from a place he was going uh, and preaching. And it tells us that a large crowd had gathered around him to hear him preach. And in fact, the text tells us that the crowd was so large that there was no room for anyone else to get in the room where he was in order to listen to him. In fact, there wasn't even room to stand at the door and even peek in to hear and to see Jesus. But as with anyone um, who had heard this news, they were excited to see what this guy, Jesus, could probably or, or possibly or miraculously do for them. So were these, there were these four friends. These four friends had a, a, a friend who was paralytic. Uh, he couldn't walk. And so they were desperate to get them before this miracle worker in order to um, see if their friend could get some help. But... When they get there, they see there's no room. And so being desperate, what they do is the four friends carry him up onto the roof of the building, of the house that he's in. They get on top of the roof, they cut a hole in the roof, and they lower their friend down into the presence of Jesus. They were so desperate for their friend that they climbed onto the roof and did something as crazy as this. And look at what happens in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. It says this, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. 
Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so what happens is he, the, they lower this paralytic man into the room with him. Jesus pronounces his sins forgiven. And then the skeptics in the crowd began to question Jesus's authority. How dare he? Doesn't he know that only God can forgive sins? Well, let me tell you this. The skeptics aren't wrong. Only God can forgive sins. But that's exactly the point. Jesus knows what they are saying. And he hears what they are saying. And he understands the scriptures in the Old Testament that they're referring to, that only God can forgive sins. Passages such as Isaiah chapter 43 that says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Or maybe even Micah chapter 7, verse 18, which says, Who is a God like you who pardons sins? So Jesus knows these things. He knows even what they're thinking in their hearts that, that he shouldn't be doing this because they think he's not God. But look at Jesus's response in verses eight through 12. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So the skeptics didn't believe that this man Jesus could forgive sins. But because Jesus is God, he responds this way, saying, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Jesus says this because Jesus recognizes something that they don't. He recognizes that, no, I am God. And so the first person to claim that Jesus is God is Jesus himself. Jesus himself claimed to be God. Now, it's easy enough for anyone to claim anything they want to about themselves, but as we search through scripture, we see that that's not the case here. It's not just Jesus who claims to be God. We see it throughout scripture. We see um, people writing throughout scripture that he, they agree that he is God. And so the second group of people to claim that Jesus is God that we're going to focus at now is the apostles. The second group of people to claim that Jesus is God is the apostles. The apostle John says in John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, there, there is a group uh, today called the Jehovah's Witnesses who actually deny the divinity of Jesus. And in their translation of the Bible, the, the New World Translation, they actually change it. They retranslate it to say that the Word was a God. But the construction of this verse in the original language does not allow for this translation. In fact, the construction of this verse actually emphasizes the fact that the word is God, that Jesus is God. But it's not just John who believes and who claims that Jesus is God. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to over 500 people, some of those people being his disciples. One of his disciples, whom we know as by the nickname Doubting Thomas. 
And when Jesus appeared to Thomas, Thomas wasn't satisfied with just seeing him. He needed to touch the wounds. He needed the evidence for himself to prove that this was actually Jesus. And isn't it just like God that he gives him the evidence that he asked for? Thomas touches the wounds. He feels the, the, the nail uh, marks in his hands. He feels the hole in his side. And the only response that Thomas can think of at this point is to cry, my Lord and my God. Thomas understood that Jesus was God. But it's not just John. It's not just Ch uh, uh, Thomas. The author of Hebrews recognizes this reality too, saying in chapter 1, verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The Apostle Paul, the one who was persecuting the church, trying to stop this Jesus movement, says this in Romans chapter 9, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God. Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times, says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter recognized it. So we see that belief, the belief that Jesus is God is well attested to in Scripture. Jesus said it, the apostles believed it, but it doesn't stop there. The third group that claims that Jesus is God is the church. The church throughout history has affirmed that Jesus is God. Around the year 319 AD, Constantine was the, the emperor of the Roman Empire at the time. And while he was emperor, there arose a dispute between two of the bishops in his empire named Arius and Alexander. Now, Arius and Alexander had gotten into a heated debate around this question of, is Jesus God? Arius claimed that a faithful reading of John chapter 3, verse 16 uh, required that we say that Jesus is not God, but that because he was begotten of God, he therefore must be a creation of God and cannot be God himself. Alexander, though, very much opposed uh, Arius' teaching on this and, in fact, argued that Jesus was not only um, the word of God, Jesus was not just the son of God, but Jesus was in fact of the same substance as God. He is God. And so Constantine, wanting to, dis wanting to stop this dispute before it became too much of a problem in his already precarious empire, called the 1800 bishops over the Roman empire to meet in a city of Nicaea in modern day Turkey in the year 325 AD to solve this problem. This event we know in, uh, in the studies of church history is the Council of Nicaea. And so the bishops gathered together in 325 in this town, in this city, and they were able to discuss these different issues raised by Arius and by Alexander. And at points, the debate became so heated that the legend actually has it that there was a bishop there who we know as St. Nicholas, um, who got so upset at Arius' teaching that he actually got up out of his seat, walked up to Arius, and punched him because he wanted to shut this heretic up so bad he was willing to do anything. So, the only thing I have to say is don't mess with Santa. 
Now, while we don't know if this actually happened, right? It is just a legend. We don't know if it happened. We do know the outcome of the council. Arius was condemned as a heretic and excommunicated along with all of his followers. And as Tim mentioned tonight, the council put together a document known as the Nicene Creed, confessing to believe this, and this, this is a quote, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And it's this document, this creed, that the church has relied on throughout history as a confession of their beliefs concerning the divinity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as God himself. So the question I asked, who claims Jesus is God? Well, Jesus himself said it, the apostles believed it, and the church affirmed it. But it's not just enough to say that that it is possible that Jesus is God. We can say it all day long, but what does it mean that Jesus is God? That's the second question. What does it mean that Jesus is God? So if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to spend the remainder of our evening together in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1 of Colossians. And as English pastor and scholar N.T. Wright notes, this passage is rightly reckoned among the most, Christ, the most important Christological passages in the New Testament. And it's for this reason that I've chosen it uh, and found it fitting for our topic tonight. So look at chapter 1, verse 15. We're just going to start with the first half. This is Paul writing to the church in Colossae. He says this, He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So we can stop there. The first thing that we mean when we say that Jesus is God is that Jesus is the visible God. Okay, Jesus is the visible God. And while scripture uses many different phrases and different adjectives to describe God, some such as the unseen God, the invisible God, we are unable to see him. We are unable to see his form. He has invisible attributes. Uh, in fact, the Gospel of John tells us that at no time has anyone seen him. But what Paul writes here in Colossians is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we have to understand a little bit about the, the Greek philosophy here that, that is impacting and influencing Paul when he's writing this. When he writes about this idea of an image, it's important to understand that an image at this point in time was not considered something distinct from the object it represented, okay? It was not considered something distinct from the object it represented. And so when Paul says that Jesus is the image of God, he is not intending to communicate that he is simply like a statue or like the picture of our president on our money, He's not saying that Jesus is some disconnected representation of God, but rather that Jesus is an exact, visible representation of God, revealing the very essence of God to us. And it is in Jesus Christ that God has chosen to visibly reveal himself to us. Jesus is God in our midst. Thus, to look upon the face of Jesus is to look upon the face of God. 
And since Jesus is the visible God, since he manifests God to us, he therefore reveals to us the very nature of God, the characteristics of God, and so we can know what God is like through Jesus Christ. Look at the second half of verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the first thing we mean when we say that Jesus is God is that he is the visible God. The second thing we mean when we say that Jesus is God is that Jesus is the transcendent creator. Okay, Jesus is the transcendent creator. When he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all of creation, we have to think about this term firstborn for a minute. Normally, we use this to denote when someone or something came into existence before something else like it. Okay? In other words, uh, your firstborn child. That means you probably have other children, but this was the first one. And this has been misunderstood uh, throughout history to, to imply that Jesus, again, to imply that Jesus was created. Okay? But we, what we have to understand is that this title is used throughout Scripture not to indicate a coming into existence, but rather as a title of sovereignty, And thus, while Jesus was incarnate within creation as God, he is distinct from creation and supreme over creation. Paul continues in in verses 16 through 17. He says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So it's because Jesus is God, and thus is the firstborn of creation, that Jesus is the origin from which all things came into existence, and in whom all creation is sustained. The point here is that Jesus is over all things, and all things find themselves under his authority and sustaining power. He is before all things and is above all things and as such is transcendent over and sustains all of creation. Creation is not self-sufficient. Whether we realize it or not, everything in creation finds finds there or its existence and its order in the person of Jesus Christ. As one commentator put it, Jesus is creation's rationale, its rhyme, and its reason. What this means is that all of creation is entirely and utterly dependent on him. This includes the Christian who already acknowledges Christ as the Lord and sustainer of their lives. And it includes the individual who is living in rebellion against Jesus. Whether whether you are a Christian or not, Jesus sustains you. Whether you are young or old, Jesus sustains you. Whether you are rich or poor, Jesus sustains you. And Paul doesn't stop here. Look at his words in verses 18 through 20. He says this, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. So the first thing we mean when we say that Jesus is God is that he is the visible God. The second thing we mean is that he is the transcendent creator. 
And the third thing we mean when we say that Jesus is God is that he is the incarnate Savior. And so when mankind sinned and plunged the entire plunged the entire human race into disorder and chaos and in rebellion against God, God made his, cl- his plan clear immediately that he was going to send someone who was to reorder and reconcile all of creation back to himself. And as the one who established order and who created all things, it is only God who could reorder and reconcile creation. And thus, in Jesus Christ, he is the incarnate Savior come to reconcile us back to God. So Paul continues pointing out in verse 18 that Jesus is the head of the church. What Paul is saying is that as head of the church, Jesus has taken God's reconciling purpose for all of creation and made it the mission of the church's communal life. Okay, let me say that again. What Paul is saying is that as head of the church, Jesus had taken... God's reconciling purpose for all of creation and made it the mission of the church's communal life. Another commentator explains this idea well, saying that the new creation has erupted in the midst of a fallen creation, and the promised blessings of the new age are now being realized within history, within the church. Thus, to participate in church is to participate in the new life and the new order that is to be fully realized at the second coming of Jesus Christ. We get a little glimpse of what's to come when we come and we gather together at church every Sunday. That's what's coming for us. And I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for that day. And in case Paul hasn't already made it clear enough, he explains further in verse 19 that Jesus isn't just like God. He's not just the son of God, but he says in verse 19 and emphasizes that in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt. The fullness of God dwelt. This here is an echo of the Old Testament language regarding God's relationship with the temple and with his people through the temple. What this meant was that in the temple, all of Israel could meet with God and have a relationship with him by being in the temple. And so Paul argues here in verse 20 that it is through our union with Jesus Christ that we are reconciled to God. It is through the person of Jesus Christ that God now meets with man. This is why Paul argues in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Jesus says in John chapter 14 that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. It's because in Jesus, the fullness of God dwells. It is in Jesus that God has made himself known to us, and it is in Jesus that God meets with us. So Jesus is God, he's the visible God, he's the transcendent creator, he's the incarnate savior. And this brings me to my third question, and like I said, arguably one of the most important. Why does it matter that Jesus is God? Okay, why does it matter that Jesus is God? Look at verse 21 and 22, it says this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
So what Paul does here in verse 21 is he describes the state of humanity before God's divine intervention. He describes us as alienated from God and therefore hostile in mind. Because of our sin, we are alienated from God and thus we cannot have a relationship with God. Therefore, we need reconciliation. In fact, this is what he means when he's talking about how we are hostile in mind. We are not just alienated from God, we are hostile towards God. We don't want anything to do with God because of our sin. But thankfully, as Paul argues in Romans chapter 5, it's while we existed in this state of alienation and hostility that God in Jesus Christ chose to come down to become incarnate and to save us and to reconcile us to himself. He didn't wait for us to turn back towards him. He made the first move in Jesus Christ. And it's here in verse 22, he says that it's in Jesus's body of flesh that God has reconciled us. What that means is because Jesus is God, our reconciliation is possible. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is due to what theologians call the hypostatic union. Uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, the fullness of God and the fullness of man are reconciled and united together in Jesus. Thus, the first reason that it matters that Jesus is God is that your reconciliation depends on it. Let me say that again. The first reason that it matters that Jesus is God is that your reconciliation depends on it. Paul continues in verse 22. Uh, giving us the purpose of that reconciliation. He says, in order that I might present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the second reason that it matters is that Jesus is God is that your sanctification is the result of it. Okay, the first is that your reconciliation depends on it. The, the second is that your sanctification is the result of it. It's through our reconciliation and the person of Jesus Christ that we are sanctified, that we are being made holy and continually being made holy, that we are made into the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ, into the image and the likeness of God. Paul sums this up well in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We become the righteousness of God. We are sanctified, not because Jesus somehow has a bucket of this stuff he calls righteousness that he pours on us when we repent. No, that is not what he says here. But we become the righteousness of God because as Christians, we are united to Jesus who is God. And as such, we are given the right to participate in the very nature of God. It's his righteousness. It's never ours. It's always the righteousness of God in which we participate through Jesus Christ, the God-man. Paul concludes his argument, though, in verse 23, uh, his argument that Jesus is God. He's the transcendent creator. He's the incarnate savior. And he turns and he makes a very clear statement to the Colossians in verse 23. He says this, 
If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Our presentation before God as holy and blameless depends on our perseverance and faith in Jesus Christ. Now, it seems as though Paul is placing the assurance of our salvation in our abilities, in what I can do. But be assured, this is not what Paul intends to do. In fact, one commentator paraphrases this verse, Paul's words here in verse 23 in this way. At any rate, if you stand firm in the faith, and I'm sure you will. So Paul is not doubting their perseverance. And this is confirmed in chapter 2, verse 5 in which he commends the Colossians for their firmness in faith in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this. Our salvation does not rest in our abilities. It rests in the abilities of God and Jesus. And we do not need to fear, for God will not fail at anything that he sets out to accomplish. God will not fail in his attempt to save you and to reconcile you back to himself. Paul, when he's writing to the Philippian church, assures them of this, in fact, in chapter 1, verse 6 of Philippians. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Christian, you will persevere, not because of your abilities, but because of the work that God is doing in Jesus Christ to reconcile you to himself. It is his work, and he will complete it. And if you're here tonight and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this same promise of reconciliation and sanctification is being held out to you. And even while you are in rebellion to God, hostile in mind, what we learn about God in Jesus Christ is that he loves you and that he died on the cross for you so that you might share in this new life that comes through his resurrection. And all you have to do is respond in repentance and faith and turn your life over to the one who created you and who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. If you want to make this decision or if you just want someone to pray with you tonight, there will be people up front after the message to, to pray with you and talk over those things with you. So the question we were faced with tonight, is Jesus really God? That's the question that Thomas Torrance spent his entire life answering. For Torrance, this question must be answered with a resounding yes. In fact, he says this. Here, referring to this, this question, we have to do with a theological principle which is of immense importance in pastoral care. How often people have said to me, will God really turn out to be what we believe him to be in Jesus Christ? That is a question I have been asked on the battlefield by a young man who had barely an hour to live. Is God really like Jesus? He continues, fearful anxiety arises in the human heart when people cannot connect Jesus up in their faith or understanding with the being of God. And then the ultimate being of God can be to them only a dark, inscrutable, arbitrary deity whom they inevitably think of with terror for their guilty conscience makes them paint harsh, angry streaks upon his face. It is quite different when the face of Jesus is identical with the face of God, when his forgiveness of sins is forgiveness indeed, for its promise is made good through the atoning sacrifice of God in Jesus Christ. 
and when the perfect love of God embodied in him casts out all fear. So is Jesus really God? If Jesus is not God, then you are not saved. If Jesus is not God, then you are not sanctified. If Jesus is not God, then you have no hope. And as the Apostle Paul said, it is God in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. So Jesus not only is God, Jesus must be God if we are to be saved. Let's pray. God, we are unworthy for what you have done for us. We were hostile and rebellious, and you chased us down and set out to reconcile us back to yourself, completely unworthy, completely undeserving. And yet you loved us so much that you reached out and took hold of us and saved us. Thank you for sending your son to help us to know you so that we can be reconciled to you and continue to grow to be more and more like you throughout our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.